Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm very glad that you have chosen to join us this evening. I'm Nathan Owens and I'm in the studio with Pastor Dr. David Murphy. Pastor, good evening. Good evening. This evening we'll be discussing contradictions in the Bible. But again, let me encourage you, as I often do, to message someone, call them, encourage them to tune in to That's Truth. We'll be with you for the next 90 minutes. Contradictions in the Bible. Are there contradictions? Why does it matter? What principles should we use for discussing and explaining these difficult passages? And how should I answer someone when they ask me questions that I don't know the answer to? Pastor, let's start with just a fundamental question. Why is it so critical that we determine whether there are contradictions in the Bible? Well, the basic reason um, <clears throat> has to do with the fact that we claim that the Bible is the Word of God. We claim it's inspired. We claim that's inerrant and infallible. Uh, if we claim to have an infallible, inerrant, inspired book, and then we discover that there are clear contradictions and even errors in the Bible, it brings the whole Bible into uh, suspicion, and it undermines the integrity of the Word. And because of that, we need to... Uh, try to clarify where there are issues and to provide biblical answers to these questions. Are there contradictions in the Bible? There are apparent contradictions. There's no doubt about that. Um, But nobody can deny that there are problem passages, uh, especially when it comes to uh, parallel passages. There are occasions when uh, the Gospel writers exclude certain details that another one would include. People see that as a contradiction. It's not really a contradiction. It's really the enhancement of the passage and the perspective from which the author uh, saw the event. Then there are apparent discrepancies. Uh, There are numbers where um, um, certain writers would use wrong numbers as opposed to detailed numbers. That sometimes is perceived as uh, some kind of an error. It's really not. And then there are... um, alleged unscientific statements that are made in the Bible that people would use. But again, uh, the Bible uses phenomenal language. It uses language of everyday language, not a technical term. Uh, the Bible is a pre-scientific book. You can't expect it to speak with such scientific precision uh, because it is designed to speak to the average person. So you do have some issues that need some clarity, but uh, we, uh, when I say we, we who hold to the infallible word and believe that God is the author of the scriptures, uh, we have answers that we can provide for people in in those areas. Can you be a born-again believer, headed to heaven, 
and not believe that the Bible is infallible, that it's inerrant? It's difficult for me as a, a pastor to conceive of a person that would entertain the idea that we don't have an infallible Bible and still be uh, a person who has a true commitment to God. Uh, everything that we believe, everything that we hold to, is dependent on, on Scripture. And uh, for me, it is difficult. Um, some people might hold a different opinion. I just think it's important that if God is wrong, the Bible is wrong in certain aspects, where can I trust it, and how can I be confident what it tells me? No, I can believe. So it's important to believe in an infallible book. I am not going to uh, pontificate here tonight and say that it's impossible, but I hold it in reserve. I think it's important that every true born-again believer uh, hold to an infallible Bible, an inspired Bible. You were referencing that the Bible is our our source of reference, but in the world that is ever-changing, whether it be morals from a secular standpoint or whether it be laws and legislation, is there any other standard that we as Christians should be holding to as dearly as we hold to Scripture? I don't see how uh, any other book or any other philosophy or or, or doctrine or uh, ideology can ever be on par with the Bible for the Christian. Uh, we are God's people. We are totally dependent on what the Bible says. And uh, we hold the Bible and esteem the Bible higher than any other book. And we're uh, a book, whether that be a history book or a scientific book or a psychological book um, or archaeological book, doesn't matter. We're at conflicts with the Bible. We hold the Scripture because we sincerely believe that we have an infallible book. So it's important for us uh, to not to put any other book on par with Scripture and understand that there's only one infallible book, that's the Scriptures. Now, I've had discussions before with people and have said something to the effect of what you've said, but the response that I often get is, you Christians come into discussions about the Bible contradictions with your mind already made up. You don't have an open, objective mind, and it doesn't matter what I say, you're going to go ahead and make excuses for what I say is a contradiction in the Bible. I, I, they, that might be partly true. Every person comes to a subject with presuppositions. I do not know of an individual who discusses any matter that doesn't have some basic fundamental presuppositions. We, from the perspective of being born again and knowing Christ as our Savior and having seen Christ work in our lives and uh, having trusted the Bible for so many years, we do have the presupposition that this is God's Word, and any subject that is brought up or any objection that is brought up or any apparent contradiction or, or issue that is brought up, uh, we are we can't help, basically, that we have this presupposition that we're dealing with an infallible book. So to some extent, I would say that is true. However, uh, if there can be a clear um, contradiction in the Bible to be shown, that is, and there's no explanation as to how it can be resolved, uh, it would create some measure of hesitancy in my mind. Uh, because while I believe in an infallible book, a contradiction, a very clear contradiction where it, there's no doubt about that, uh, it creates suspe- sus- my suspicion that I may not be dealing with an infallible book. So, but uh, the unsaved person also comes with presuppositions. His presupposition is that the Bible is not the Word of God. There's no such an infallible book. He's not for morality. He's not for God, whatever it is. So we all come to issues with presuppositions, and we need to bear those in mind. But what's important for the Christian is that truth must always correspond to reality. And uh, we 
while we are uh, we have these this presupposition that the Bible is God's word, um, I to some I to a great extent I try to be as objective as possible, uh, even though I know that there is a subjective element involved. So we can't we can't get away from the fact that we all have presuppositions when we come to scripture or to, to any issue basically. We have a caller from Gray's Farm, Antigua. Go ahead. Thank you for calling. Yeah, good evening. Sir. Good evening. I listen to Catholic answers every afternoon. And I always hear them talking about the rosary. What is this rosary? The rosary um, is a Catholic phenomenon where they... Can you repeat it for me, please? No, I'm saying the rosary is supposed to be some kind of a, a, a kind of a form of a necklace that you have these different beads, and you're supposed to recite the holy. I'm wondering if it's um, made full of grace. Yeah. That's it. But that's basically what it is. But it's not it's not something that is scriptural or biblical. This is just a, a Catholic. Uh, All right. I'll ask a Catholic, some Catholic minister about it then. Uh, All right. Okay. Have a nice evening. You too. Thanks. Thank you for calling. Pastor, does the rosary, since that topic came up, does that gain us anything uh, in the eyes of God? Well, it has no application anywhere in Scripture. Uh, as a matter of fact, I call it vain repetition. Our Lord warns us about repeating prayers uh, again and again and again and again. Um, uh, and he, he, he made it very, very clear that we ought to pray thoughtfully. He's given us a uh, a prayer pattern, how we to pray, but to keep repeating Hail Mary doesn't help anybody, can't help anybody. Poor Mary can't even help herself because uh, she is as dead as anybody else. She, she's not assumed and gone up to heaven where she didn't die. There's no queen in heaven as they, they claim that she's queen of heaven. Uh, Mary was the mother of the Lord, uh, mother of uh, the human nature of Christ. But there's no merit in saying prayers to Mary. As a matter of fact, Mary can't answer any of the prayers that we would pray to her. The Bible is very, very clear that we pray to God in the name of Jesus. And to impose uh, a, a person like Mary between us and God is, uh, in my judgment, idolatry. Uh, so I, I, I personally, as a, a Baptist preacher, as a, a born-again believer, I, I, I think it is really, really um, an idolatrous practice to be praying to a woman and repeating those kind of prayers. Pastor, what are some principles that we should, as we get back to the topic of difficult passages, are there overarching principles that we should have in mind when we come to a difficult passage? I'm going to use uh, uh, Norman Geisler. Um, he is a gentleman that wrote the book, When Critics Ask and When Skeptics Ask. Um, he, in the book when critics ask has offered us some very useful um, ideas and helpful advice uh, when we're confronted with these different types of it, it supposed um, contradictions or apparent discrepancies. I just want to share some of what he has um, given in this book and I think they're very very helpful. One of the principles that he asks us to bear in mind when we're dealing with these matters is assuming that the what seem to be unexplained is not explainable. And, and he uses an example. Um, in the past, uh, there were issues that were brought up that there was no apparent explanation at the time. Uh, later on, um, discoveries were made, especially in the area of archaeology. Take, for example, the Bible mentioned the Hittites in the book of Genesis. For decades, even centuries, 
there was no uh, historical record, there was no archaeological discoveries that mentioned even a Hittite people. So it was assumed that because you could not explain the Hittite uh, experience, uh, it was assumed that there was an uh, error, there was a contradiction, uh, it was unhistorical. Uh, later on it was discovered that not only was there Hittite people, but there was a vast Hittite empire and civilization. So uh, the, there was also a claim at one time that Moses could not have written the, the, the Pentateuch because he could not write. And if you were to read some of the old uh, critical books against the Bible, you would discover that that is one of the claims. Now it's discovered that a thousand years before Moses, uh, men could write. So a lot of things that were not explainable at the time because they had not made the discoveries, men came to false conclusions. And unfortunately, these same concepts are regurgitated in, in books and, and put back in books again and again. And uh, people who have read these many, many years ago are not even aware of the archaeological finds that make these arguments that were once used against the Bible to be outdated. One thing that he pointed out that I found very interesting mm-hmm. along the lines of if something can't be explained, people will often say, oh, oh it's a contradiction, mm-hmm. is he drew out that scientists in the past uh, couldn't explain earthquakes or tornadoes or hurricanes. Right. But now as they've been studying relentlessly the the science behind it, they understand it. But you never hear a scientist who can't explain something say, oh, it's a contradiction. Yeah. No, yeah. they... Well, that's, that's what propels um, Bible scholars. when They're challenged with these kind of apparent inexplicable issues or contradictions. They don't throw their hands up in the air and say there's no answer. We, we, because, again, you go over the presupposition that this is God's Word, this is an infallible book. They know there must be an answer somewhere. So they're just like a scientist. He can't explain a, a mystery that seems mysterious to him. He doesn't give up. He, he pursues that because he knows that this universe is run by laws and, and, uh, and principles. He tries to discover what law, what principle governs whatever the matter is. Same thing when it comes to biblical truth. Uh, we just don't, because we can't explain at this point in time, it doesn't mean there's not an answer. Uh, discoveries will come at some point in time to, to make it very clear. But the secular man has two different standards. He holds the Bible to one standard and says, if I can't explain it, Mm -hmm. I'm going to write it off as a contradiction. But when it comes to science, he's willing to accept that, oh, we we just haven't discovered that yet. A little frustrating in my mind. There's a clear prejudice against the Bible and a bias against the Bible, no doubt about that. And it's rooted not in man's intellect. It's rooted in man's moral nature. The problem with man is not his head, it's his heart. He is the, that's why the Bible says the fool has said in his heart, not in his head, there's no God. Because man really uh, wants to have freedom to do what he pleases, how to live, and especially in his moral life. He doesn't want to be controlled. And because of that, he has a, an antipathy towards God. So that is to be expected. Um, the other principle that he, he mentions that I think is important um, is the matter of confusing man's um, fallible interpretations with the uh, the fact of God's in, um, infallible revelation. And what he means by that is that many times we will come to an interpretation and that interpretation might be, might be misleading and we might come to a conclusion on that interpretation only to discover later whether by linguistics or whatever we understand the root of the word, we understand the concept, or maybe it's a custom that we didn't understand and we came, came to a conclusion. 
And we got to understand that our interpretations might vary over time in terms of as to get more information about a word or about a custom that brings greater clarity. So there are some mistakes that might have been made as far as interpretation is concerned. Uh, but again, that does not mean that the book, uh, this error in the book, it just means that our interpretation was wrong. Um, the other thing he mentioned is that the failing to understand the context of the passage. And this is where I think most of the cults go wrong. The uh, most common mistake is uh, taking a text out of its context, and that often leads to a false interpretation. For example, you can take the expression, there is no God, out of context, and say, see the Bible teaches there is no God. But if you read the, the, the context of it and see what the psalmist is saying, the fool have said in his heart, there is no God. But if I took that phrase out of the context, I could be teaching, use that to teach something the Bible is not actually teaching. Uh, the Bible says, resist not evil. Uh, again, if you take it out of the context, you can, you can uh, misinterpret and misapply mm -hmm. uh, the passage. So the context is very, very, very crucial, and you can only determine the meaning of a passage by taking it in its context. And cults are notorious for divorcing the context and the passage. Consequently, it leads to a lot of error. Um, the other uh, principle that he, he mentioned is neglecting to interpret difficult passages by, in light of the clear ones, the transparent passage. If I have a passage of Scripture that is not very, very clear, but there are a dozen passages that are very clear on an issue, I must interpret that difficult passage by the clear passage. Take the matter of baptism for just a moment. Uh, there are people that have come to the conclusion that baptism is essential for salvation, and they believe that if you're not baptized, you're not saved. But again, if you take the other passage of Scripture that is so very, very, very clear that you're saved by faith, uh, it's not by any works, uh, that those that believe are baptized, uh, if you take the idea that the thief on the cross, he was not baptized, yet he was saved. Uh, so but so those, those, they might find a passage that uh, would seem to teach baptismal regeneration. But when you look at it in light of all the other clear passages, you should interpret that one that is difficult by the clear passage. But couldn't you say that that's a contradiction then? Because you have one passage that says it is uh, be baptized and be saved, mm -hmm. whereas you may have 90 others uh, that say that it is not essential. But when it seems to be a contradiction, now you've got to find out what's the explanation there. Okay. And there's a very clear explanation for that passage that is found, I think, it's in Mark. So you're going back to context. You've got, got to go back okay. to context. Not only that, in, in that passage, it's not only the context now, it's the actual word itself uh, um, for the remission of sins and the, the, the whole passage itself. There's not one interpretation. There is another interpretation that helps to explain that passage in light of the clear passages. And that's what I mean that there might seem an apparent contradiction, but you've got to try to... In other words, for me, if the Bible is God's words, infallible, it's inspired. If it seemed to contradict, there must be an explanation. And sometimes it's a grammatical explanation, sometimes it's a word explanation that brings clarity to the whole issue. You're listening to That's Truth. You're listening to the voice of Pastor Dr. David Murphy. He's the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Antigua. And he is the voice here on That's Truth. And he is answering your questions as we're discussing the topic of apparent contradictions in the Bible. If you have a question about another topic, you feel free to call in also. 
But if you have a question, go ahead and call in or send it. Let me give you the contact information if you want to be put live on the air. The number is one 462 7420 To be put live on the air, one 462 7420 And then the, if you would rather WhatsApp or text a question, you can send it to 268 782-1454. And if you're watching, if you're joining us on Facebook Live, thank you for joining us. And you can just put your question in the comments and it will be passed along to Pastor. I want to um, elaborate a little bit on this one, uh, neglecting to interpret the difficult passage in light of the clear passage or the transparent passage. Uh, take the, the uh, apparent contradiction between Paul and James about justification. Uh, Paul makes it very, very clear in the book of Romans that a man is justified by faith alone. That's very, very clear. When you come to James now, James says that uh, was not Abraham our father justified by works. Yeah. It's interesting that the passage that James uses is the one where Abraham offered his son. The passage that Paul uses is where um, is in Genesis chapter 15. So you've got one in chapter, chapter 15 and one chapter 22. Paul is talking about being justified before God. When Abraham believed God and was counted him for righteousness, that is found in uh, Romans chapter 4. It's also found in, in um, Genesis chapter 15. When James is talking about faith in relation to man, though, James uses the illustration how Abraham... Now remember, Abraham was justified in chapter 15 before God. But now, it now uses um, Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham offered his son. And he said, when he did that, he was now justified by the works. But again, James is dealing with our uh, people seeing our justification before man. How, how man sees that we are justified by what, how we live, basically, by our works. And that is correct. Uh, you can't blame. Jesus said, by your fruits you shall know them. Right? You only know a Christian, a person is an authentic believer, by the changed life. You cannot, a man can make all the profession in the world and can scream from now until eternity comes and say that he's a Christian, but he has no fruit in his life. Uh, we are not, we are called to be fruit inspectors. By your fruit, you shall know them. So we should be able to look at a person's life. There's no transformation, there's no change, uh, there's no alteration in lifestyle. They just continue as they were pre-conversion, now post-conversion, one has to every reason to hold that person's profession in suspect and in suspension because unless there's evidence in the person's life, a person is justified in holding some reservation as to whether or not this is an authentic uh, decision. I like that phrase, we're called to be fruit inspectors because that's yeah. the only thing we that's can what inspect. He said. Yeah. Uh, by the fruits you should know them. We'll leave it to God to judge the heart. Uh, are there any other principles that you would suggest or that you're aware of that we should use when we look at difficult passages in Scripture? Well, um, another one that is mentioned by Geisler in his book, um, When Critics Ask, is the assuming that a partial report is a full uh, report. And what I mean by that is many times in the Gospels, um, um, the writers would exclude certain details that another one might include. 
or uh, so what happens a lot of people go to those particular parallel passages and say but you know he mentioned something that wasn't mentioned there or he added something that wasn't added well all they're doing is elaborating it has to do with perspective it's like four different people watching an a- accident and giving a report I would hazard a guess that you're going to get four different details because I'm going to see something that I think is important to me. You're going to see something that you notice that I, you might notice the guy had on a red shirt. I noticed he had a black pants. I might only mention the black pants and not the red shirt. So when you write now, you put the red shirt. It doesn't mean that it's a contradiction, it's just the perspective from which you... And then when you come to the Gospels in particular, because this is used very frequently in visitation, where people say that there are four Gospels that uh, tell four different stories. And I feel sorry for people who hold that opinion because they really don't understand what the Gospels are about. One of the greatest points is in relation to the Gospels showed that there was no collusion between the gospel writers, and they gave their own particular perspective. Uh, when Matthew is writing, Matthew is writing to the Jews, and he's presenting Jesus Christ as king. So he enhances uh, that teaching, that, 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 that perspective, by drawing attention to Old Testament passages that talk about the Messiah coming, and also emphasizing his lineage, uh, his royal line, that he, he acts as king, he speaks authoritatively as king because that's the thing. When you come to Mark, he presents Jesus Christ as a servant because he's writing to the Romans. So you find that one of the common words that Mark uses is straightway, straightway. That's a servant, very, very active, just to do any math. When you come to Luke, he presents Jesus as the perfect man because he's writing to the Greeks. And the Greeks always uh, saw the man as the embodiment of, 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 of perfection, basically. You look at the statues that the Greeks would make, the perfect body shapes, etc. And Jesus Christ is presented as the Son of Man. So again, he emphasizes the humanity of Christ, the, the, the praying of Christ as a man, the hunger, etc., etc. And then when you come to, to John, he presents Christ to the world. He presents as as, as God, basically. And again, he emphasizes sign miracles, that this one is divine. So it all has to do with perspectives. It's not that they're contradicting each other. It just has to do with what's your purpose in writing. And if my purpose in writing is to prove that Jesus Christ is king, I look at those incidents in his life and those uh, events in his life that would indicate very clearly uh, that he was acting as Israel's Messiah and the king to come. So would you say that the accounts of the Gospels would actually be more suspect if they were the exact same thing? Well, you can't. Yeah, I, I would, I would, I. You know, it's hard to know how people respond. They're just looking for an excuse for everything. If if the if everyone uh, each one said the exactly the same thing, uh, they'll probably say, you know, there was collusion here. Clearly, this guy copied from this guy, et cetera, et cetera. Now that there's clearly four different gospels, four different perspectives, they know that well, uh, there are four different presentations of Christ, so therefore it cannot be true. We gotta realize that we are dealing with a fallen humanity. We're dealing with fallen man who has an antipathy for God. No question about that. And we have been trying to eradicate God and uh, create all kinds of doubts about God's existence because we don't only want to be held accountable to Him. Uh, and therefore, we are trying to find all kinds of specious excuses as to why we do not believe in God. And the way you do that is to undermine Scripture, because that's where we get our knowledge. So it would not surprise me either way, the skeptic, the agnostic, the atheist will find some excuse eventually. we just got to provide the answers for those who are really searching for truth. How do you know if a person is, as you're witnessing to them, if they're really seeking for truth or whether they're there to argue with you? 
to my knowledge, I mean, you, uh, in my own experience, uh, you have it's a it's a subjective thing. Uh, you can know whether or not a person really, really wants an answer, or he's just trying to trip you up. Generally speaking, when a person really is searching, and um, and you were to offer some helpful advice, and even suggest to him, can I bring a book for you to read? Uh, we'd, we'd be willing to follow this up on the internet, whatever it is. You find it be a positive response. Those people generally who really don't have any interest are just trying to trip you or just to get rid of you. Basically, it doesn't take you long to see what angle they're coming from, and uh, so you just got to read the vibes that you get from them as you talk to them. Do you have any more principles that you'd like to bring to our attention before we look at specific passages? Uh, there's another one that he, he, he mentioned. There are about 16 um, principles that he mentioned. Uh, and that was uh, the other one he mentioned is assuming that divergent accounts are false, which is the same thing we talked about there for just a moment, because there's some variation. When you come to the book of Chronicles and the book of uh, Kings, uh, both of them record basically the same um, historical events, but again, they they present them from different perspective. One in Chronicles is from the perspective of the priest, priesthood. Uh, the other one is, is from the prophetic perspectives. So you will have different emphases in those books. It doesn't mean that they're contradiction. It has to do with the perspective. I have a question that has come in. First John chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. And this comes from a listener in Antigua. Verse 8 of First John chapter 3 says, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. And verse 10 says, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness, is not of God. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of exception that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. As a believer, are we sinners saved by grace? Even John Wesley went wrong on that particular passage. John Wesley um, actually uh, taught sinless perfection. Uh, there's another passage that you could probably have read earlier in John. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Mm-hmm. When John says in that passage, he that is born of God does not commit sin, it's in the linear tense. It's in the present tense. And what John is saying there, he that is born of God does not habitually practice sin. There's a difference between the habitual practice of sin and actually sin itself. So John is here talking about the habitual practice of sin. A born-again believer is not going to be habitually practicing sin. We sin in thought, word, and deed. But it's not the, it's not our lifestyle. That's what he's talking about. A person who claims to be a born again believer, but his lifestyle is one of sinning. You can mark it down that that person's uh, that person's conversion is suspect. That person's profession is suspect. So um, we are sinners. We are saved sinners. We will only uh, lose our sinful nature when we see him. We shall be like him. 
But until he returns and we be transformed and become like him, we will always have a sinful nature. And there will be a conflict going on in the believer between the sinful nature and the Holy Spirit. We have the divine nature as well. We're part of the divine nature. So there's a struggle in the believer's life between the old nature and the new nature. And that conflict will continue until the Lord returns. But uh, a Christian, uh, though he sins, he is not habitually practicing sin uh, as a believer. I hope that brings some clarity to the to the, uh, the person who has asked the question. We are saved sinners. We still have the sinful nature, and uh, we will still commit acts of sin. But our lifestyle will be not be marked by a lifestyle of habitual sinning. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 kilohertz AM, 92.3 megahertz FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. For this program, we are also on Facebook Live. Thank you for those of you who are joining us that way. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.05, so we still have 55 minutes left in the program. Go ahead and send in your questions. Thank you for the listener who sent that question in. We are here, Pastor Murphy's here to answer your questions. If you want to call, you can do that. The number is 268-462-7420. If you would rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send that to the following number, 268-782-1454. WhatsApp or text, 268-782-1454. Let me, uh, could I? Yeah, go ahead. Another um, principle that needs to be borne in mind when you're dealing with with apparent contradictions and errors is that uh, the error presuming that that everything the Bible records is seen to approve, that's not so. For example, uh, divorce Mm. clearly was never God's will for mankind. But because God has recorded that there was divorce, that doesn't mean you must not assume that he endorsed it or that he favored it. Why Um, did he record some? I mean, there's some pretty graphic stories in the Old Testament, especially, or even in Corinthians where Paul chides the the church for accepting those who were practicing fornication. mm -hmm. Uh, Why would God choose to include that in the Bible if it's an inspired word from God? Well, don't forget that in, in, when it comes to the Old Testament, basically it's a narrative, it's history. It's recording how God dealt with man, and then God chose his people Israel and gave it the history of the progress of God dealing with them. So uh, it's a historical narrative of what, what has taken place, and you have to record the events except what took place. The other thing that the, the Bible tells us, that these things were written for our admonition that we can learn. We don't have to make the, repeat the same mistakes that people made in the past. And that's one of the most useful purposes of the Bible, that you can see the mistakes that they made so that we can learn uh, from them. Uh, and then um, the, the, the point I'm making here is that, for example, God records David's adultery, but it doesn't mean that God approved it. Right? Yeah. Uh, and again, would you not be um, taken aback if you just saw in the Bible all perfect people? It would be hopeless. Uh, it would be a very hopeless situation. So even though all of us have feet of clay, 
we're born-again believers, we are going to have issues and troubles and temptations just like they had. And we need to learn from them the mistakes that they made so we don't repeat them. Uh, another one is polygamy. I mean, the Bible records that even some of the great kings of Israel committed uh, acts of polygamy. But again, that was never God's will. Remember when Jesus asked about marriage, he said, he took them back to Genesis as it was not so from the beginning. That was God's intent. One man, one woman become. But again, uh, the recording of polygamy is not the endorsement of polygamy. This is just a social custom that some of God's people, unfortunately, adopted and practiced. But it doesn't have the sanction of God uh, as far as scriptures is concerned. Are there any other principles that you'd like to draw to our attention, and then we'll yeah, look at some uh, troublesome One passages. other one I think is very important is forgetting that the Bible uses uh, everyday language and not technical scientific language. Uh, for example, today we talk about the sun rising. You know, that, 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 that is phenomenal language, what appears to be. And we can't expect people who lived in uh, four, six thousand years, six, almost six thousand years ago, to understand the technicality of scientific language. So the language that they use was what appeared to them. Uh, and that needs to be borne in mind. Uh, uh, it would be an anachronism if we had talked about in the in the scriptures about the the uh, something that is modernly scientific, like we understand the the, the sun doesn't rise. I mean, basic. I mean, the, it doesn't <laughs> set it. Whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, but the language that is used is phenomenal language, or as seen by individuals, as seen as appearance. And it's not the technical language that we have today. We can't hold the Bible to that technical standard because the Bible is a pre-scientific book written in language that the average man, the average person would understand. But to balance that out, there's also things in there that man didn't accept from the secular uh, worldview, like the earth being flat. For many, many centuries, secular man said the world is flat, and the Bible spoke of it as being round. Correct. God sits on the the circle of the universe. Um, Also, the concept of gravity is there, that God hangs the world on nothing. If you check the Hindu Vedas, they got the earth on the back of a, um, I think it's a, 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 it's a, an a turtle. Elephant or a turtle? A turtle, yeah, yeah. floating. <laughs> so um, clearly that the Bible was ahead. Also the wind cycle. Mm. Read the book of Ecclesiastes and the uh, the water cycle is also there in Ecclesiastes mm. where before man ever really uh, came to this scientific knowledge. Pastor, does the Bible tell us just to take things by blind faith without actually thinking them through? And the reason I ask that question is there are some people that, when asked uh, about difficult passages, will just kind of throw up their hands, per se, and say, oh, I just I have true faith in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Are we supposed to think things through with our own head? Well, look, let's put it this way. There's another passage of Scripture that you can balance that with. God said, come now and let us reason together. Uh, so you have to use your, your mind. God doesn't expect you to suspend your mind. As a matter of fact, I've said this many, many times. I'm not too sure how frequently I've said it on the radio, but I've said it in the church, our church many times. The Bible deals with truth, and truth can only appeal to the mind. So to neglect the mind and to not to use reason really is completely contrary to the whole design of Scripture. That's why we got the Bible in propositional form that we can use or intellect, we can use our knowledge of grammar, uh, syntax, etc., 
to try to find we can do etymological studies in in word studies etc we can do all of that we can um, go into archaeology we've got to be constantly using the mind the Bible doesn't expect you to just act on faith without having some re- our faith is a reasonable faith right that's why the Bible says come and let us reason together when I consider um, the whole doctrine of salvation the whole concept of human sin it makes the greatest sense to me that I know that I'm a sinner uh, it, the, the Bible explains question, uh, issues that there's no other book that explains where I came from uh, how, how I got here why am I in the condition I'm in why I have all these struggles the Bible gives me those and they are true to reality they conform to reality as it is not as men want it to be or men think it is but as it is I'm a sinner I know I'm a sinner I struggle as a, as a person uh, and it makes sense that I know when I look myself in the mirror I just couldn't just happen uh, it's almost I don't have enough faith to believe in evolution that's the truth it is it's much easier for me to believe in a great sovereign almighty omnipotent God who created all of this for me to believe that things just happen by chance I know the pen in my hand could never happen by chance mm-hmm. and I'm, the smallest cell in my body is far more complex than the pen I'm holding in my hand oh, so it's yeah. impossible for me to so we got to use our reason God doesn't expect us to spend our reason Let's talk about a particular, uh, or said to be contradictions. Let me let me inject with one other thing, one other yeah. principle I think is vitally important, and that is uh, one of the mistakes that's made often, and uh, is that we forget that the Bible uh, contains a lot of different literary genres. In other words, you got parables. You got um, narratives. You got poetry. You got history. You got prophecy. You got drama. You got riddles. The reason I'm saying that because you have a lot of literary devices that are used in the Bible, and for example, God would have us on His wings. Now, God doesn't have wings, okay? But again, if you don't appreciate the fact that <clears throat> that you have figurative terms used in the Bible that you use in poetry. Uh, you can have wrong interpretations about who God is. Um, when the Bible talks about God having a face and God having hands, etc., etc., these are taken uh, human personification. Hu- no, no, these are taken human terms. Okay, they call it uh, anthrop- anthropomorphisms, where you're using terms that apply to man, apply to God, because uh, we only understand um, things that we can relate to. So those descriptions that are used of God really are to accommodate the limitation of our understanding. We have two questions that have come in. The first one comes uh, from the UK. If there are contradictions of the Bible, how can a believer then, how can believers of the Bible explain those to haters of it? Well, there are no contradictions in the Bible. There are apparent contradictions. That's the point we're making. If there seems to be a contradiction in the Bible, uh, believe you me, there the, the Bible has been wrong for so many centuries. Uh, you've got Bible scholars for, for oh, centuries who've been dealing with these kind of issues. What we need to do is to put the ammunition in the person's hand who thinks they've got a contradiction, either loan them a book, make a recommendation, so they can see that there are answers. Uh, there are no contradictions. There are apparent contradictions. There are apparent errors. But there are explanations that are reasonable 
uh, that can bring clarity and bring understanding. And that's what we must do when we're dealing with unsafe people. We just can't, if a person has a genuine concern about a passage of Scripture, he thinks that there's an error uh, in that particular passage. Uh, if you yourself are unable to provide an answer, there are some very, very helpful books that you can uh, suggest to the, the person. Or if you have them, you can loan them. But that's how we're going to do our... Uh, um, we are going to be Christian apologists. What books would you suggest? Well, there are several. Uh, I just have two before me right now. Uh, one is written by uh, Norman Geisel along with uh, James Brooks. That is called when uh, when when uh, skeptics when when critics ask, mm. and there's another one by Geisler, and he writes that in connection with how um, that has to do with uh, when critics ask. Uh, there's a series of books, as a matter of fact, that he has, when skeptics ask, when cultists ask, and when... Um, um, forgot the other term that is used there. There are some others that I could um, quickly recommend. While uh, you're looking those up, let me just mention that some of these are very affordable. I was just on Amazon today, just looking out of curiosity, and the book When Critics Ask, which, by the way, is a wonderful book for this topic, I saw on Amazon for less than seven U.S. dollars for the hardback book, which I think is a steal of a deal. I'm not a salesman here, but for a very good resource. If I may tell the audience, I bought that book for 90 easy dollars, so you've got a real deal for that book. The other ones I would suggest is a, one I bought last night on um Amazon, and I bought it, the Kindle version of it. Uh, it is called the Encyclopedia of Biblical Problems, Biblical uh, Difficulties by uh, Gleason Archer, uh, fantastic writer. I think he's now deceased, but uh, he provides um, phenomenal information as to how to answer these questions. And then there's one by Run Rhodes called Answering the Objections of Atheists, Agnostics, and Skeptics. That's a very useful book. It's a small book, but very, very, very useful. And then Walter Kaiser has one, Hard Sayings of the Bible. He's a great writer, a Reformed theologian, but a great writer nonetheless. And then jo Josh McDowell, along with Don Stewart, Answering Tough Questions. Um, not a very large volume, but again, categorizes the different issues and provides answers. I think those, uh, s at least six of those, can be very, very helpful. There are others, but I find that these are the, the ones that I find to be very, very useful. Uh, Arya Tori also has one on Bible questions. I have that as well. I think it's written by Penningill and uh, Arya Tori. That's a very useful book as well. I have a number of questions coming in, Pastor. Uh, one in relation to Mark chapter 3, verse 29, which says, But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Spirit hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. If all sins are forgivable, why is blaspheming against the Holy Ghost unforgivable? And that comes from a listener in Antigua. Thank you for asking that question. That is the only unpardonable sin mentioned in the Bible, and our, our Lord himself mentioned it. And it's very clear why that is, because for a person to be converted, he can only be converted through the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has to use the Word of God to bring conviction. That's the Spirit's job. When you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, the very instrument agent that you need to bring about conversion 
um, you have actually excluded yourself from his working in your life, so therefore it can't be forgiven. Now, the other thing I'd like to say about this, that in the context of Mark, Mark and also in the context of uh, the, other, uh, old, the other New Testament books that mention this, uh, there are scholars who believe that this is not a sin that can be repeated today. Uh, mainly because the Jews were there attributing the works of Christ to Beelzebub. Uh, here was Christ manifest in the flesh. He has shown them all these miraculous signs before, but in their obduracy, refusing to believe him as the Messiah, uh, they attributed his miraculous works to the Holy Spirit. And uh, our Lord said, made it very, very clear that that is an unpardonable sin. So there's only one biblical sin that we know of in the Bible that is unpardonable and unforgivable, and that is the, the unpardonable sin of, of, of um, attributing the works of, of, of God to the, uh, to the um, Beelzebub. We have another question that has come in from Antigua. And it's in relation to James chapter 4 and verse 8. And the verse says, Clean your hands, ye sinners, and purify your heart, ye double-minded. James 4, 8. Pastor, is this speaking to Christians? Yeah, I would, I would, I would take that to Remember that James is writing an epistle. Most of the epistles, as a matter of fact, are written to believers. Uh, so you, you can take as a given that this is written to, to believers. So believers are here called um, in, in verse number 8. It says, draw near, is that the passage? Yeah. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your heart, ye double-minded. You'll also find that uh, later, James also called, says to the church, you adulterers and uh, murderers, basically, uh, in the passage. But of course, that is taken in a figurative way, uh, referring to the relationship they have with the world. And, of course, the fighting and the anger among believers that would lead to, to great uh, animosity. So that's why he would use those kind of terms. But clearly in this passage, it's, um, I don't have any doubt that he's referring to believers who are, are sinning. And he's calling upon them to purify their hearts and not to be double-minded. I, I don't have a, a, a problem with that at all. You're listening to That's Truth. If you have a question for Pastor Murphy, that's why he's here, is to answer your questions from the Bible. You can call 268 268- Four six two seven four two zero and be put live on the air. Let me give that number to you again. To be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. Or if you would rather just WhatsApp or text your question, you can send that to 268-782-1454. Or if you are on Facebook Live, you can just put that as a comment and it will get passed along your question will get passed along to Pastor Murphy. Uh, Pastor, I want to cover a few particular supposed contradictions or difficult passages. And I want to start at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 seem to give two different accounts of the timeline of creation. And let me just uh, share. Uh, Genesis one twenty four says that God created the animals... And then two verses later, he created man. But if we skip down to chapter 2, verse 7, it says God created man. And then in verse 19, it says he created animals. So do these two chapters contradict each other by changing the order of creation? The 
answer that's normally given uh, to this issue between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 is that in Genesis chapter 1 you have what is called the cosmological um, approach to creation. In other words, it's, it's just giving a general account of what God did and the name associated there is the name Elohim, the, the all-powerful God creating the universe. So it's a general um, explanation of, of creation. When you come to chapter 2, and this is normally called the anthropological approach to creation, where the, the whole center now is man, and the, the, the name that's associated with that is the, the name Jehovah, which is the covenant name. So God is now entering into a relationship with man. I, I, there's no contradiction there, basically. It is just that you've gotten, a, in the first chapter, you've got a general overview of how God created. Now in chapter 2, the whole focus is on man, that he is the center, and God is going to enter into a relationship with him. So I don't see a contradiction there. It's just a different, different viewpoint uh, that you come from. I don't know if you have heard this argument before, but I recently heard, you know, at the surge of feminism, I recently heard a feminist say that there's clear evidence that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 were written by two different authors. And the basis when something like this, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says man and women were created at the same time. But then in chapter 2, the account in verse 7 says man was created, and then in verses 21 and 22, it says that woman was created as a helpmeet for man, and that obviously is a sexist version because it is saying that woman was created for man. What would be your response in today's day and age when feminism is such on the rise? Well, look, again, Genesis chapter 1 is a general overview of creation. It's just saying it. And by the way, this is not just the, the Bible that does that. If you check the uh, literature, ancient literature, it's the same model. You make a general statement about what happened, and then you give details later. That's exactly what is happening there. It's just that the person is not aware that the literary device that is used here, general, and then you come to particular, that is not something that is unique to the Scripture. It's just a phenomenon of the language and the way people express things that is, is, is what Moses... Moses is writing in the context of his times, and he's using the same literary devices he, that the average person would have used then, and the same format that would be used in the ancient writings. Uh, a general summary of what happened, and then you give details. That's what's happening there. Uh, moving on to another supposed contradiction or difficult passage or topic would be uh, Jesus is said to be peace or bring peace on earth. And some examples of that would be Luke chapter 2, verse 14, a passage that we're all familiar with from the Christmas season where the angels come to the shepherds in the field. It says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. John fourteen twenty seven says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth I give unto you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In Acts chapter 10, verse 36, it says, The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord. So Jesus is proclaimed to be peace in those passages. But then in Matthew ten thirty-four, it very clearly says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I am. I came not to send peace, but a sword. 
did Jesus come to bring peace or not? Is that a contradiction? I don't think it's a contradiction. I think it's an oxymoron. It, it seemed to be an apparent contradiction there. But look, let me put it this way. Jesus Christ came to bring peace between man and God. There's no doubt about that. Uh, so that peace between man and God would also bring peace among men. In other words, take the church, uh, take any church. In that church, you you can find people who were having great difficulty with each other before, uh, maybe at war with each other, you get converted, you become part of family. But on the other hand, conversion uh, creates division in the home. Uh, take a wife, for example, who comes to faith in Jesus Christ, and now she used to go to parties, she used to drink alcohol, she would uh, maybe... Um, I'm not too sure if they do wife swapping here in Antigua, whatever it is. Now she's come to faith in Jesus Christ. She says to her husband, listen, um, um, I, I can't do certain things. I can't go certain places. <clears throat> that can create war. That can bring... So in a sense, she has peace with God. She has peace with other believers. But because of her change and transformation, it now creates division within the home. In that sense, uh, the Lord brought peace with God, but as far as human relation, it could cause division. Children as well. Um, you can find that um, a, ch- a, ch- um, a child can come to faith in Christ, a teenager, and um, God, he feels that God is leading him down a particular line, maybe to become a missionary. The parents have got ambition for him to be a doctor, a lawyer, uh, an accountant, uh, whatever. Uh, but he turns 18 or 20, he becomes his man, he says, Mom, I, I love you, I, you know, but this is what God is... Again, you can get a lot of hostility going on there. So we got to understand two things. There's a peace with God, but not in every case is there going to be peace among men because if a person is holding to biblical truth and holding to biblical principles, those that are holding contrary to that will always be at war. There's going to be conflict down here uh, until Jesus comes back because there's righteousness and there's unrighteousness. Those that are followers of Christ and enjoy His righteousness, there'll be peace among them. Those that oppose that righteousness will always be at hostility with the believer. But, again, He came to bring peace between us and God. He did come to bring peace among His people, but you always have those who don't belong to Him, and you always have this ongoing antagonism that will be there and is not going to be erased. Until those who are not saved put their faith and trust in Christ, they will always be to some extent at war with us because we will not go along with their lifestyle and we cannot support uh, how they live. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question that came from the British Virgin Islands. I heard a preacher say that if you are married to someone whose spouse is still alive, you are committing adultery. And that in order to be saved, you have to leave that marriage, even though you already have children. The preacher said you are forever living in adultery. How would you respond to that? There's some difficult uh, issues that um, it's unfortunate that we create such um, a mess. And we become so tangled in those kind of things. Look, the Bible, in my judgment, gives two legitimate grounds for divorce. Uh, it gives the grounds for divorce that there is adultery. It doesn't have to be a divorce because of adultery. But the one uh, oneness between the two uh, is now broken, and a third party has come in, and that oneness is now destroyed. Uh, I take Matthew, uh, passage Matthew, where except for adultery. So I take adultery as a basis for divorce. I do not recommend it. 
and I will do everything to salvage the marriage. But if it is completely irreconcilable, and especially if it is something that's completely repeated again and again and again and again and again, if that partner decides that they want to terminate the marriage, I think they have biblical grounds. But the other one that Paul mentions in uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 7 is abandonment, where a person abandons their partner. Uh, somebody's married in Antigua, and they just run off somewhere to another part of the world and just disappears. Uh, that is abandonment. And Paul makes it clear clear in in, uh, in uh, Corinthians 7, assisting a case like that is not bound. So I believe that uh, adultery and abandonment are grounds for uh, divorce. However, let me just say this. I am not too... For me, the only person who can remarry is the person who is innocent. The guilty person has no basis for remarriage. Uh, I think that is very, very, very clear in the Bible. That is why um, when you are going to marry a divorced person, you have to be clear in your mind as to whether or not you're dealing with an innocent party or the guilty party. You have to... Look, we've messed this thing up so badly uh, that even in the church, we've created all kinds of complications that should never have happened. And uh, But for me... Um, the only person who has a right to to remarry is the innocent party. Let me just reread a phrase. I didn't catch it the first time I read it before we were on the I read it on the air. It says that you are still committing adultery and that in order to be saved, you have to leave that marriage, even though you already have children. Would you agree with that? Sir, salvation is a matter of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Um I don't see the connection between that and putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Um, I am not too sure the situation that they're talking about, and they're talking about a guilty party going and uh, marrying somebody else and now having children. I'm not too sure if that's a scenario, or the innocent party going and marrying somebody. I'm not too sure the scenario that is there. I, I will just say my position, and I want to repeat it again. There are two grounds for divorce. Divor- um, two grounds for divorce. Adultery and abandonment, and the only the innocent person has the biblical basis not only to divorce but also to remarry. The person who is the guilty person, they have no biblical grounds for divorce, and I would never marry a person who is divorced and who is the one that's the guilty party. I would not be part of, part of that. Would you ever be in favor of recommending, though, that someone leave a marriage that they're in, or is the goal always to... They're married. No, I would never recommend that. I'll tell you why. I think that comes under the category of polygamy, almost like polygamy. Uh, there are times when missionaries go overseas, mm-hmm. and uh, there are in a polygamous culture, and people get saved, they get converted. Um, it is. Uh, I do not know of any um, that any person who has ever recommended that that relationship ends. Normally, they recommend that you maintain uh, taking care of your wives. Um, If I was in that situation, though, I probably would uh, strongly suggest that you stick with one wife but still maintain the others because in a polygamous relationship. But there are, these are complications that there's no uh, 
quick solution to this matter. We complicate things. We <laughs> sin has made this whole world such a mess that sometimes to try to unravel it, uh, we don't have all the minute details as to how to unravel it. But I would not recommend a person who is uh, divorced, even if they've divorced. Um, and they're the person who was wrong and went and got married and now got children, I would not recommend that they leave that relationship. I think that God's common grace would probably uh, deal with that, but I wouldn't recommend that they do that. You're listening to That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Thank you for that uh, listener who sent that in from the British Virgin Islands. We're glad we're able to reach you there in the Virgin Islands. Thanks for listening. I have another question that came in. From Antigua, according to James 4.8, which is the verse we were looking at before, then is it okay to call a Christian a sinner, according to James? Well, if James calls them a sinner, I don't see why you shouldn't call them a sinner. If they're sinning, they're sinners. <laughs> I don't think that's a big, a big problem. Um, you know, at the same passage, it uh, said, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. And then it goes on, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of God, and he shall lift you up. Uh, speak no evil one to another. Clearly, he's in the context. I just read the whole context that he's dealing with Christians. And uh, and by the way, uh, be a sinner here. I'm not too sure what word he's using there, whether he's using the word for transgressor, he's using the word for sinner missing the mark. But clearly, even believers uh, uh, could get off into sin and uh, nothing wrong in calling them a sinner because that's what they are. They're saved sinners. Another... Uh, difficult passage or difficult uh, topic in the scripture that often is called a contradiction is the genealogies of Jesus Christ in Matthew and Luke. And they differ, especially when you come to the grandfather of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 verse 16 says Jacob and Luke 3.23 says Heli. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ, the most important man to ever live, but how can you say that the Bible is accurate if the genealogies of Jesus Christ don't agree? Well, again, there's a biblical answer for that. Uh, it's not. It's not. That's why I say that when you see uh, what seems to be an apparent contradiction, there are answers, and that's why we have to let people know and uh, make them resources available to people that uh, give them some real clear answers. Matthew, for example. Remember, Matthew is presenting Jesus Christ as the King of Israel, the Messiah. Therefore, Matthew traces the genealogy of Joseph, because Joseph is his, uh, Jesus is his adopted son, and the legal line for the Davidic throne, the legal line, has to come to the man. So that is why Matthew traces it through Joseph. Luke, on the other hand, presents Jesus Christ not as the king of Israel. He presents Jesus Christ as the son of man. He traces it back to Adam. And he traces that line through Mary. And that is now where the, not now the legal line, the natural line, the, the line that um, be, being Jewish mm-hmm. comes through. So it's not that they're contradicting each other. It has to do with the purpose of the writing. One case, i got to prove that Jesus Christ has a legal right to the throne. The other one, i got to prove that Jesus Christ goes way back to Adam. So it's two different genealogies. Two, two different genealogies traced differently because there's a different purpose of the writer. So they're not that they're, it's not as though they're contradicting each other. It has to do with the purpose. Very straightforward answer there to that 
difficult, so-called difficult passage. Uh, the Bible clearly prohibits incest in Leviticus 18 and verse 6. It says, None of you shall approach to any other that is near of kin to him to uncover their nakedness. I am the Lord. But if the Bible is true as you claim, there is no way that you and I and all the rest of us came about apart from Adam's family and Noah's family clearly practicing incest. So how do we reconcile a clear command against incest with a obviously it was practiced. Well, you've got to figure out what was God's intent, uh, original intent. If man had not sinned, clearly there would be no need for, I mean, um, there would be no need to put different prohibitions. But the gene pool uh, of humanity became contaminated when man sinned. As a result, the, um, the weakening of the gene pool uh, clearly would have led to um, deformities. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's common knowledge in the medical profession that if you have intermarriage, whether it be animals, if a, a sheep has offspring and that offspring mates with the sheep and they do that for a certain um, period of time, the deterioration of the animal, both in health, etc., that's a given. Uh, so clearly what was needed, uh, originally uh, we all sprang from one seed, Adam and Eve. That's the unit of the, of the universe, uh, of ma- mankind. Uh, but as sin entered, uh, God saw that, he, that, that there was need to prohibit that now because of the contamination of the gene pool, and it would lead to deformities and all kinds of stuff like that. And, and by the way, um, there are things that God allows, uh, and then God stops. You find that throughout the Bible. Um, same thing in the Old Testament. There are things that were allowed in the Old Testament. God stops in the New Testament. God is sovereign, and, and God knows what's best for us. But once sin entered the world, uh, it became necessary to put limits. The other thing is, um, the we don't have all the record, but by the time we come to the book of Leviticus, and we begin to go into the, um, the, going to, the conquest of, of Canaan, Etc. When you read of the sins that God forbid uh, the Israelites doing, it's very, very clear that because there was no restrictions on incest, the man had become so evil in his sexual sin mm-hmm. that God saw it was necessary to put limits on it now. So the human history had progressed to the extent where God could see, could, could really clearly see that something had to be done. And then God intervened and put clear limits. It's like, again, God allowed... Um, man to be a vegetarian at first, but after the flood, he allows him to be a carnivore. Yeah. It all has to do with the progress of history, different circumstances, etc., and God has to put limitations. We have a caller, Pastor, from St. Kitts. Thank you for calling, and go ahead. Yes, sir. All right. We will, if the caller from St. Kitts would like to call back, we'll put you back on the air. Sorry we weren't able to put you on at this time. Uh, Pastor, it is taught and it is said that God does not change. I think that's a very fundamental teaching in uh, Christianity. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not man, he should not lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. 
But in Genesis 6, 6, it says that it repented God that he made man. This is talking about the flood, if I recall. Mm -hmm. It also, if we think back to the situation with Abraham and God, the conversation that's recorded, and Abraham was pleading for Lot's life and for the life of any righteous people that are found in Sodom. Uh, and God kept going back and forth and changing his mind. How can an unchanging God change his mind? Well, it depends on what we mean by God unchanging and God being immutable. God is immutable and unchanging in terms of his character, in terms of his nature, in terms of his purpose. God doesn't change his purpose. God doesn't change his character. God doesn't change his nature. He's immutable. But as far as God dealing with man, God also deals with man on the principle that if a man repents what God intended, the punishment intended, God now withholds that punishment. That's a very clear principle in the Scripture, that God deals with man on the basis of his repentance and change. As man changes, uh, God changes what is due to man in terms of his punishment. We see that, for example, in the book of Jonah, where uh, Jonah was told that 40 days, then it will be destroyed. And Jonah was told to go to Nineveh and tell them know that in 40 days God will destroy. But what happened when the people repented? See, Again, the conditionality under which God deals with man, that on the basis of repentance, when man repents, the punishment that is due to, God, due to man is withheld. So even though God had determined to destroy uh, Nineveh, the act of repentance is a principle that God uh, God deals with. Yeah. Uh, caller from St. Kitts, go ahead. Thanks for calling back. Good. Thank you very much, um, Pastor Nita. Good night. Good night, sir. You, and good night to Pastor Murphy. Good night, what sir. What I clean, or the people are saying, what is being cleansed, we must not call it unclean. In Deuteronomy 14, it spells out what we should eat as meat from, from what we should not eat. But in Acts chapter 9 and chapter 10, Peter went out preaching all day, all day. And when he came back, he was tired. Went on the balcony and he felt in a doze. And he saw white sheet, white sheet coming down from heaven with a four-footed beast. And he said, rise, kill and eat. Peter said, no, Lord. It is unclean. And if he said, said to Peter, what is clean? Don't call it unclean. Today, people are eating all kinds of things, and they are saying that what is, in, what is clean, we must not call it unclean. I took it in this sense, that one is spiritual and one is biological. In Deuteronomy, to me, it's biological. And in Acts chapter 9 and 10, it is spiritual. Can, can Pastor Murphy explain this to everybody, please? Thank you. Yes, thank you for the call. In the Old Testament, there are certain dietary restrictions, no doubt about that. Uh, but clearly, under the economy of law, those restrictions were designed to make a distinction between Israel and the the other people that dwell in those, the pagans, basically. So whether it be dietary laws or clothing or even 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 planting, you couldn't plant two seeds with each other, etc. God was trying to show Israel that there had to be a clear distinction and separation between them and the people. And in every aspect of their life, there was this line of demarcation to differentiate Israel, even the diets, the way they dress, etc., etc. 
So under the economy of law, uh, there were dietary restrictions. We come now to the New Testament, and we discover uh, not only the illustration that was used there with terms of Peter, uh, where uh, Peter was told to, to kill, eat, and Peter said um, he's never eaten anything unclean. And then God said, what I've made clean, um, don't call unclean. Some people use that as a principle to saying that now uh, the what was restricted under the Old Testament economy is no longer uh, a restriction that's been lifted. But that's not the best argument. I was trying to find a passage in uh, Timothy, and I don't have my concordance here, maybe, and it's not off my bat. But uh, in that particular passage, Paul says that he's persuaded that everything that's received with thanksgiving is virtually acceptable and sanctified by the Word. So the dietary laws that once were part of the Old Testament economy is no longer applicable under the New Testament age. Um, the the dietary laws, the ceremonial laws, the the um, even some of the civic laws that were under the under the Old Testament economy have been nailed to the cross. So those restrictions that were once imposed under the economy of law, under the economy of grace, are no longer applicable. That's why we have the freedom, and we feel that we have the freedom not to be um, under the the yoke of the law these dietary laws in the Old Testament. I will try to find a passage in Timothy, that, that uh, was, but I couldn't find it immediately here. But there is a passage in, in, uh, in Timothy that talks to this matter very, very clearly, that uh, he's persuaded that there's nothing clean, nothing unclean, but everything that's received with thanksgiving is acceptable by God. That's there in Timothy. So clearly Paul has a different opinion. Uh, and remember, Paul is a Jew. He understands that in the Gentile world, on the economy of grace, those dietary laws no longer apply. So they don't apply to us today? No. In Antigua. A WhatsApp question from Antigua. What about these two passages? One seems to restrict liberty and the other give liberty. Uh, Romans 14.21 says, It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. But then if you go to Colossians 2.16, it says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days. There's no real contradiction there. I mean, as I said, Paul points out in the book of Romans that all things are lawful for me. The Christian is the freest man on planet Earth. As long as there's nothing in the Bible that restricts specifically anything there. He has liberty and freedom to enjoy whatever he wants to enjoy. But again, it comes back to what Paul says as well. All things are lawful and all things are not expedient. All things are not uh, edifying. All things do not um, build up, etc. So it, it, it goes back to the whole matter. While I have freedom and liberty, and as a Christian, there is no clear restriction to me in the Bible. I have the liberty to enjoy my life as I see it. Yet, that doesn't mean I'm not without the law of Christ. And law of Christ is law of love, which now I take into consideration but the, the effect of what I do on my brother or my sister or even somebody outside. So they're not contradicting. It's just saying to you, look, the Christian has the greatest freedom, but we have to restrict our freedom in the interests of the weaker brother because that's the principle of love. The law of love. Love, what is love? Love is living in what is the best interest for the object of the love. It's not about what is the best for me. It's always looking after the, the welfare 
uh, of the object of that love. And that's why the Christian should voluntarily restrict himself of his liberty in the interest of those who may be offended and may not may, may find something offensive that uh, you as an individual might feel is quite, um, you can actually go ahead and do it. So there's no contradiction there. Do you have a topic that you'd like us to discuss here on That's Truth? Send us a message. Give us a call. We would be glad to hear what your suggestion is and then to uh, consider discussing it on That's Truth. You can send the topic to 268. This is for WhatsApp or text. Send the message to 268 268- Seven eight two one four five four. Again, this program is for you, for your edification, and for your improvement as a person, as an individual. And I hope and pray that you're a Christian as you're listening. But if you're not, we are still here for you, and we want to interact with you and answer your questions. If you have a topic that is relevant to you in the life that you live, please let us know. Pastor Murphy, Jesus was tempted but yet we're taught in Scripture that he can't be tempted. Uh, James 1.13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But then if we go to Matthew 4.1, it says, Then Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Can he be tempted or not? Well, the simple explanation there is that Jesus is the God-man. Don't forget that. If you don't, uh, if you just see Jesus as God, and you forget the fact that He is a God-man, as God He cannot be tempted, but as man He can be tempted. As a matter of fact, it was necessary for Him to be tempted as a man, because He is tempted in all points, like as we are. That's why He's become a sympathizing high priest to us. So, what might seem a, a contradiction or a complicated matter is, is resolved when you understand the dual nature of Christ. He's both the, 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 the he's both man and God at the same time. He's a God man. And I think that's where the explanation is. How about this one? Is God one or is he three? Because in Deuteronomy 6 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. But then in Matthew 28 19, in other passages, but 28 19 says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So, how can you have a God that's one and three gods? At the again, same time? again, if you look at the word one, uh, it's the, the Hebrew word is a plural. And when I say a plural, uh, for example, um, when it says that uh, the two shall be one, mm-hmm. again, it's not a, a one as a unit. So the whole idea, with the, the, the word that is used here in the Hebrew language is a, it's a, a word that connotes more than one. But it's the idea of oneness, basically, that's what it really means there. Not that there's one unit, one singular. Um, if you check the Hebrew word, those of you who have your concordance, check it up, and you'll see that it really it's a, a, a one that indicates uh, unity as opposed to just a single unit. So if we were speaking Hebrew, if we read Hebrew, we would not be having this discussion on this question because it's almost the shallowness of the English language and it the is. translation. I, I just I just got a book um, when I was in the States, I think earlier this year, um, uh, a Jewish guy who wrote a commentary. And this is, this is one of the areas that he dealt with. And to him, it's, it's no problem, basically, when he understands the, the concept. But uh, the, the positive of the English language is very hard sometimes to include what uh, what that word means the fullness that is why by the way uh, any religion that tries to offer uh, come up with something new 
uh, I would never follow a leader who comes up with something that is completely novel of the Bible if he doesn't understand Greek or Hebrew. I don't care who he is. Because he's basing it off of a translation. Yeah, of the not only that, he's, he's limited in the understanding of the original languages. Mm. And you cannot, everybody knows that. You cannot word for word translate a concept. For example, I was in St. Lucia for 10 years pastoring, and they speak the Creole language there. And I mean, it's a powerful language. You, I can tell a joke in English, and nobody would laugh. But you tell that same joke in Creole, it becomes historical. There's something about the nuance of the language. Yeah. Uh, and I think all of us are aware that if you're translating French to English or even Spanish to English or vice versa, something is lost in the process. That's why, for example, the Amplified Bible would give you a word and then it elaborates on it in brackets. It this, this is give you further understanding of what the word means. Um, so that's where the, a lot of language and um, the Greek and the Hebrew clears up a lot of issues like the one that we brought there he that's born of God does not sin Yeah, I mean really if you, if you don't understand that the, there's a linear tense and what that means you can end up believing that if you sin you're, you're lost and you're not a Christian but that's not what it's talking about you do not have a habitual lifestyle of sinning like what you were before you were Christian that was your lifestyle sin was just part of your nature no you fight against sin you sin but you still fight against sin so it's not the same but the Greek clears that up immediately Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, probably one of the most well-known passages of Scripture. It says, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. Uh, But yet, God, did he not command the Israelites to kill off whole cities, whole groups of people, and not only just kill off the soldiers and the men, but to kill off women and children and animals? How is that not a contradiction? Well, one of the things that will help you understand is that the word that is used here in the book of Exodus um, is the word raksha, and it's the Hebrew word for murder. It merely thou shalt not murder. It's not thou shalt not kill. Okay. The, uh, the Hebrew word for kill is the word laraj. Um, so two different words. If you check the modern translation, like the New King James Version, or you check the NIV, you see they've got the correct word there, thou shalt not murder. Uh, but in the case of Israel, God is the moral judge of the universe, and he is directing his people to execute judgment on his behalf. And uh, as the sovereign judge of the universe, he knows uh, who is guilty from who is not guilty. It's just like the, the um, God delegates to um, government the right to take life, capital punishment. Uh, if a person commits a capital crime, that that authority is to take life and to uh, execute judgment for capital offense. It's been delegated to human government because God is the moral uh, superior of the universe, and he, he, he determines and he sets uh, the standard, and he can order execution, and the person who is acting as his agent can do that execution because he's the moral God of the universe. I don't have a problem with that. The other thing is um, when it comes to the uh, wholesale slaughter of these uh, people in the book in, in the book of Genesis, especially the Canaanites. You must remember Genesis fifteen thirteen and Genesis fifteen sixteen. Uh, it is said the iniquity of the Amorites is not ripe yet, and it will take four hundred thirty years before God executes His judgment. So these these are nations that were given four hundred thirty years to either repent or change. 
And believe me, 430 years is a long time. And God saw it necessary to execute judgment because there was no change. Same thing with the flood. It reached a stage where man was only evil continually, and God wiped out the entire universe. He has the authority to do that because he's God. He's the moral uh, sovereign of the universe, and he has the right to do that. Pastor, do we as Christians have to have an answer for every question that may arise out of the Bible? I don't think we we, we, we have to, but I think we, we should try to do it because, again, we're trying to give a reason for the hopeless in us. And uh, we've got to be able to present answers. If people are really struggling, we ought to do our utmost best to try to eliminate that barrier that is there and give a good, solid biblical answer. And uh, that should be we, that should be our desire to try to eliminate barricades to the faith. Real quickly, how should I answer someone when they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? If you don't know the answer, tell you don't know the answer, but you'll find out. Okay. <laughs> Again, if you are looking for a good book on the topic, one of the good books is "When Critics Ask" by Norman Geisler. Thanks for joining us tonight on That's Truth. I really enjoyed it, and I know Pastor Murphy did too, interacting with you on this topic. Be sure that you tune in again next week, and we will be discussing capital punishment, a topic that has been discussed for quite some time and is very relevant even in the day and age that we live in. Is capital punishment legitimate, and does the Bible endorse it, especially in today's day and age? Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.